Jesus inside. That's how I feel this time of year. So it's great to have all of you in person with us this morning. It's also great to have all of you online with us today as well. And I love the fact that this is the season that we're in. And, and not just because I love the day of Christmas, though that is fantastic, but I really love the fact that as a church, every couple of years, we take time to, to celebrate this season that we call Advent, this four weeks of kind of just refocusing. I think it's a time, at least I know for me, that I, I, I push aside some of the cares of this world. I push aside a little bit of the preoccupation with all of the busyness of life, and it gives me a chance to just focus on this idea, this radical notion that God so loved that he came, that he gave, that he served, that though he was king, he becomes the slave to all of us uh, to rescue us. I mean, that's what the season's all about. And so it deeply marks me because what it reminds me of in these four weeks of Advent is that we are a part of this epic unfolding story of God. And it really is a singular story. It's not seven dispensations. It's not three ages. It's not really even two testaments. It's one great story where God is so passionate, so committed, so caring that he steps into the human condition and he's willing to give everything to rescue us from ourselves. See, that's what this holiday is really all about. That's what Advent is designed to be all about. And so as we start the season of Advent, we start with this theme of peace. A profound peace, a lasting peace, and a necessary peace for our lives. And so this morning, as we're going to begin and look at this idea of peace, just very quickly and getting the big idea of this theme of peace, I want to start with prayer. But for the season of Advent, I want us to do it a little bit different as we gather together. See, typically, we start a message, I say, pray with me, we all bow our heads, I pray for a minute, maybe two if I'm really long-winded that day, and that's it, and we move on to the message. But what I want to do for Advent is I want to create space for all of us to pray. Now, I don't mean you're going to huddle in little groups and pray as groups. I just mean to yourself, I'm going to guide you right now in just a minute or two of prayer where we can settle our hearts, we can go before God, we can appeal to God as a people as we get ready to hear his word and the different themes of Advent. And so right now, just where you're at, whether it be at home or here in the auditorium, I just want you to bow your head, and I'm going to guide you in just a couple of little ideas, and you yourself can go to the Father, go to the Son, go to the Spirit, and you can pray whatever words you feel are laid upon your heart. This is the space for the congregation to pray right now, so go ahead and join with me. There's a little pattern I learned years ago. And it's this idea of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, which is our requests. And so I want to start with just encouraging you to go before God right now and simply adore him, to praise him for his goodness in your life and the things that he has done for you.
Adoration is so much about his goodness. But confession is also about his goodness of grace. That when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse. And we're all flawed, we're all human, we're all imperfect. And so right now, if there's anything where you feel like you just got to get it off your chest, right, and put it before the throne where he forgives with mercy and grace, take a moment to say, Father, forgive me for this attitude or this action or this affection that robs me of your peace and your joy. and confession should lead to thanksgiving we just celebrated that holiday right now take a moment to thank him for what he has done Last is supplication. It's a fancy word for basically saying, God, we have needs. We are working above our pay grade and only you can deliver. It's where we say, God, we, we need you to step in and to act and to move and to do. And, and so there's certainly things I'm sure we all have need of when it comes to God, a family member that we are aching for, a circumstance that we are fighting with, maybe just a hope that we desire to see come to be, whatever it is, just take a moment to go to him and say, God, here is what I need from you as the good gift giver. Jesus, we take this time out of our weeks because we really need you. In fact, we need you all throughout our week. And sometimes we rob ourselves of, of the real quality of life that is found in you because we get so busy, so preoccupied, so focused on other things, so even distraught at times over things, and we're thinking about them more than we're praying about them. We're worrying about them more than we're trusting you with them. And I, I pray that we will use the season of Advent to really just again get our minds and hearts in alignment with you, to sense your presence, to be reminded of not just the reason for the season, but the reason that you created the season to replenish us, to give us life, to give us wholeness, and as we will see today, to give us peace. Peace that we can experience so that we might then express that peace. And so we look to you this morning to guide us, remind us, inspire us, encourage us, and certainly change us. May we be more like you, and from that, may the world come in contact with you more. And so we look to you, we love you, we need you, and we praise you in your good and perfect name. Amen. So, peace. That is the theme of the day.
And it's a familiar word this time of year, right? It's a well-worn word. You're going to go to the mall. You're going to see peace. You're going to get Christmas cards. You're going to talk about peace. You're going to hear songs all about peace. We talk a lot about peace. We desire peace. The world speaks of peace. We hunger for peace. But for all of the talk of this, we really struggle to establish it. And we really struggle at times to even sense it in our own lives. No matter how much we try to stack the deck to really see peace established, it just seems elusive. And there may be different reasons for this. In part, it may just be the simple fact that peace is kind of a fragile thing to maintain. But I think there's a deeper problem, at least when I think about it in my own life and my relationship to peace. And that is that basically, you ready? Peace is boring. It's boring, right? It's not that interesting. It's not that exciting. I mean, think about it. Think about how many of our movies, our television shows, our epic stories, our books are all about peace, right? Peace doesn't sell in the same way. There is no peace channel on DirecTV. There's not. There's history, there's discovery, there's all kinds of, but there's no peace channel. You will not find on any single platform PlayStation, Xbox, anything, a first-person peace game, right? Like, you're a first-person diplomat. You're going around saying, let's get along. You know, like, that. there's no game for that, right? It's all shoot, blow up, stab, and kill. I mean, that's our thing. We're not satisfied unless the Avengers have completely destroyed a city to establish peace, right? It's like even the great Christmas movie uh, of John McClane and Die Hard, right? He's got to blow up Nakatomi Tower to, to really liberate everybody involved, That's our dilemma. We want the bully to get his own. We want the snob girl to be brought low. We want the bad guy to die, to fall, to burn, to whatever. And then we go, oh, that's the conclusion of the story. So while we talk often about we need more peace in the world, if we're honest, we watch hockey for the fights, right? Like there's just this thing in us that likes to talk of this concept But there's this inclination in us that kind of ebbs towards conflict, toward division, toward stirring things up more than calming things down. But this goes back to our heritage. It wasn't always like this. This wasn't always our problem, but it's been most of our problem for most of human history. But if we go way, way, way back to the genesis of our story, we see that the story was different. In fact, even our Advent reading and prayer this morning was all related to how things began and then from that, how things got off track. And so I want us to start at the beginning of the story because the whole story of Advent is the story of the story. And so at the beginning of this story, we see a scene. It's in Genesis chapter 2. It says, The Lord God... He's there with the man, and he causes the man to fall asleep into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord took out one of the man's ribs, or literally, he pulled from the man's side. That's the more accurate reading in Hebrew. He pulled from the man's side, and he closed up the opening. And then from that, the Lord God made a woman from his side, from his rib that he brought from the man. And then he took the two and united them into one, And it says then that the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. 
Now, I start there, not so we can get all into the trees of the story, but rather, I want us to look at the forest. There's tons there we could unpack if we had the time, but there's a big idea. And the big idea, when you're looking at the verse, is that you see God, you see the man, you see the woman, you see there's unity, and there's no shame. Even in their most exposed state, there's no shame, there's no embarrassment, there's no secrets, there's nothing to hide. See, what you have in Genesis 2 is literally peace, harmony, connection, beauty, as was shared, it's shalom. See, the Hebrews talk about this word, and it's almost elusive to us today because it's so pregnant with the beauty and richness of interconnectivity. So marriage was perfect. Our relationship to God was perfect. Everything was in alignment. This is foreign to us. We're not born into that kind of world, but that was the world as it was created. There was legitimate peace. Us to God, God to us, us to one another. Right? So that's the beauty of the story. But soon this peace, this shalom, is shattered in conflict emerges a protagonist enters the scene in genesis chapter 3 he stirs dissatisfaction in the players and division is born in the story humanity desires in the story to enter into knowledge out of due season See, as we grew, I believe God would have introduced us to deeper things, but we accelerated the process. We wanted more before we were ready for more, and it creates this conflict. It creates rebellion, and this rebellion has this flood of consequence. And the man and the woman, as soon as they go into that, they know it. They feel it in their bones. There's something in their soul that suddenly just goes sideways. There's a sense in them that the peace that they'd enjoyed, the shalom that had been so real, is suddenly vanished. And in that, the conflict instantly begins between themselves and God and between one another. And so you see the story unfolds where God enters into the garden. He's going to spend some time with his newlyweds. And the newlyweds, they sense his presence. The newlyweds are already trying to hide themselves in their nakedness and in their shame. In a clumsy, broken, silly manner, they're literally grabbing leaves and trying to cover the brokenness, trying to cover the lack of peace that has been sacrificed in their decision, right? So you you can appreciate all of that. And I think about this idea of how they went from unashamed to shamed. At least that's what they sensed. Think about it, it's the first time they'd ever experienced such an emotion. The desire to run away from your mistake and you can't. That's the essence of the shame that they feel. So they're just doing this really silly act of maybe a leaf will get rid of all of it. And if we hide behind a tree, the all-seeing God won't see us. Right? But, but God is all-seeing and shame runs deeper than external coverings. So God asks the question, Where are you? Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? Where are you guys at? I thought you'd be out here just hanging out in the sun, sunbathing as a naked couple. Where are you now? But they're tucked away. And so 
finally Adam calls out in verse 10 of chapter 3 he says I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself and so God said well who told you that you were naked have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat but see what you see in that verse is already the poison that's unfolding right the poison that undermines peace look closely at the passage what's he say I heard I was afraid I was naked I hid myself see he's a couple right he's got a wife but he's not looking out for her now he's thinking about himself he's not thinking about God he's not thinking about her he's thinking about him and see that is the thing that erodes all peace all peace is destroyed in this world when it says I'm more interested in me than in you I'm more interested in me than in God and that's Adam's space so when you're just interested in yourself you're going to have conflict you're not going to have shalom it goes deeper in his next set of words then the man said to God well it was the woman whom you gave me and she gave me the fruit of the tree and then I ate and then the Lord God said to the woman what is this that you have done and the woman said well the serpent deceived me and I ate now I think this is an interesting part of the story because Adam's still blaming right and you see it in there it's your fault God and it's her fault this is why there's no peace between Adam and God and between the man and the woman at this point He's in it for himself to get out of trouble. Now, I'm going to give some credit to Eve because Eve actually takes responsibility here. She says, I was deceived and I did this. See, Adam's blaming. Eve's at least owning a little bit here. But the damage is done. The friction is there. The divide is underway. There is, again, no peace. And so the consequence of conflict is unfolding in the story. And so the remainder of the chapter is just an entire kind of narrative on conflict, on divide that's going to be true to the human condition. First, it starts with what God says to the serpent. He says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. I will put in between, between, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is the ultimate conflict, right? Because it's really describing that there's going to be an offspring of the woman who will be in conflict with the serpent, and this is kind of an archetype of Jesus versus the devil. What's amazing about it, though, there's hope embedded into the story, too, that there will be an offspring, and you will strike him, but he will crush you, but it will be conflict. It will be conflict of a different nature as we will continue to see throughout the season of Advent, but you see that the story is then about divide, division, friction. To the woman, God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So through the woman will come the solution of peace eventually with an offspring that overturns the problem. But in the meantime, the road will be conflict. She'll have children, and it will be so painful to raise them. 
We learned about this even recently, that there is this reality that some of the greatest struggle you will have, some of the greatest lack of peace you will possess as a mother is raising your kids. Right? This is the conflict of the fall of Eden. And then when it comes to marital relationship, that idea of you will desire him, but he will rule over you just shows the perpetual tension that can exist in marriage, each desiring their own way and trying to figure out how to make peace, but also get what they need and get what they want, and there can be real friction there. Then to the man, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, this one's a little bit tougher to dig into a little bit, but, but it's interesting because the word for dirt and the name for the man is almost the same. So his name is Adam, and dirt is Adam. Right? So you came from dirt, and that should be your home. Right? That should be the place that you feel most at home, you most are in tune with, the, the thing that you most understand. Right, That's the idea. And so really in a weird sort of way, God's like, you came from dirt, and so now I'm going to call you dirty. You know, But it's not negative, it's positive. It's like, this should be the space that you just thrive in, but now you won't thrive there. What he's in essence saying to the man is, you will always be sort of out of rhythm with the world that you were supposed to lead. You will always feel perpetually discontent. You will always feel as though life is working against you more than with you and for you. You will not have peace in your labors. Just as your wife won't have peace in her labors. And just as you won't have peace with one another. And just as you won't have peace with me because you will be removed from the life-giving space of my presence and Eden and you will be out in a difficult and arid world. One that will be hard on your soul and hard on your marriage and hard on your kids and hard on life and filled with conflict. In fact, it says he drove the man to the east out of the garden and then he placed a cherub with a flaming sword that turned in every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, the tree of life is like this at-homeness. It's at-oneness. The tree of life is where you find peace. But now that's divorced of their existence and their reality. They're not going to have peace with each other. They're not going to have peace with God. Their siblings aren't going to have peace. Those offspring aren't going to have peace. And that's what you see through the rest of the Bible. I mean, Genesis chapter 4, this brother kills that brother. By the end of chapter 4, some dude kills a stranger, and it's just off the rails at that point. And when you read the rest of the narrative of the story of the Bible, all you see is perpetual conflict. And when you get out of the Bible for just a minute, and you look at human history, what you see is perpetual conflict. We're good at fighting. Assault and retaliation. Demonizing this group and idolizing that group platitudes of peace but actions of war like that's the way the story continues to unfold and this is why then when we read this book we come across these little snippets that speak of peace and honestly that should ignite our hearts 
it should be the place where we look and we go, oh, then how do we have that peace? How do we communicate that peace? How do we live that peace and share that peace with others? We should, every time we come across the word peace in the Bible, our hearts should just long for that space. Like it's a calling home again. Which is why I think then the first Sunday of Advent being peace is so important. In fact, it's one of the most famous passages of the Christmas story that has to do with peace. To the book of Isaiah, it's a promise that is given. And it says in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called, we know it, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, he will be the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish this and he will uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then it closes with this little thing. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now here's what's cool about this little passage. Traditionally, princes were bred to be kings and kings were built to go to war, right? That's just the way it worked. You had a king, and they fought for your side against their side. But this prince is utterly different. He will not use war to establish peace. He will do something else as a prince of peace that brings peace in a way the world has never seen, and he does it in a means totally unexpected. The reason according to this at least, is that God is zealous for peace. He's zealous for it. In fact, I re read that this week and I was convicted. Like, am I zealous for peace or am I too eager to be factious? Because God was so zealous for peace, he himself will come to establish it. He will do it. He will come to us, among us, and for us. He will enter into the conflict and he will not use normal conflict to undo the problem. He will do it in other ways. In fact, we see this promise later in Isaiah chapter 54. It says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. So somehow what Isaiah is getting at is God will show up and when God shows up, he's going to teach us some things about peace. And if we really believe them and do them and own them and share them, we will have a rich peace and that will bring peace to the world. But he's going to come and teach us himself so that we can enjoy it and so we can expose the world to it. And then on one unsuspecting evening, we see then the advent of God, the promise fulfilled in the book of Isaiah where he comes to renew, he comes to embody, and he comes to mentor us in the way of peace. It says in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, it says, in the same region, right, where Jesus was born in a cave to a poor family, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were fear filled with great fear. And then the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Just that thought for a minute. Born to you in the city of the great conqueror, the violent King David is a new king who isn't violent like David, who isn't angry like David, who isn't flawed like David. A very different king, a prince of peace. This will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And no sooner does this angel make the statement that suddenly there was a vast multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. The prince who overcomes war with peace, he arrives. And as we know the rest of his story, he does not subdue his enemies in the way of normal warfare. Right? He doesn't bust out the swords, start cracking skulls. No, he lays himself down freely, willingly, lovingly, sacrificially to bring restoration. In fact, Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 1. It's become one of my favorite passages, thinking about the hope we are to have. It says in verse 19, For in him was all the fullness of God, and it was pleased to dwell in him. Why? So that through him he might reconcile to himself all things. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Normally we think in this world that you have to establish peace by shedding the blood of your enemies. We don't typically think that real peace is displayed and enforced and created when we spill our own blood, not in conflict but in love. We, we don't work that way. We don't think that way. But that's how backwards and upside down God's kingdom is. And so Jesus willingly spills his blood, and from that it establishes peace. See, this is profound because for centuries Israel had been thinking, no, it's conflict, it's war, it's kings, it's violence. That's the only way we're going to secure our peace as a people. And then their God comes and he brings peace by laying himself down willingly. And the scope of this is pretty impressive. The scope of the peace, literally it says, all things in heaven and on earth. I'll tell you, I don't know fully what that's talking about, but that gives me hope. If all things are all things, that gives me hope. I want to hope against hope in the scope of his peace. Now, how this peace is understood, how this peace is established, how this peace is then grafted into our lives is to say, all right, then I want to get it so I can give it. Now, here's the thing I'm going to be really honest about because I'm a big fan of being honest. What I'm going to say next is, is simple, but it's not easy. Right? So I want to be clear about that because God came to give us peace, but to really sense this peace, to experience this peace that he offers, the, the, the path, I can, I'm going to paint it for you in a couple of verses. It's that simple to outline, but it is not easy to do. Because what we're getting at here is that if we're going to truly be ambassadors of peace, we have to experience it to express it, right? So I'm going to give you the experience part, what you need to do, I need to do to experience it, and then from that, what we need to do to express it. And it's tough. How do you experience it, though? Paul outlines this. I love going to this passage all the time because Jesus says, I'm going to give you a peace that no one can take away, a joy that is unstoppable, but there's some stuff you have to do to really 
come in tune with it. Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is a roadmap to peace. Think about how often your peace is robbed because you're anxious. You're worried about the economy, you're worried about the government, you're worried about your kids, you're worried about your marriage, you're worried about your job, you're worried about national catastrophes, you're worried about the weather. All kinds of things can rob us because we're anxious. And Paul's like, man, do yourself a favor. Start off by rejoicing, and then don't be anxious, but pray. Be thankful in your prayers. Be going to God in your prayers. And the more you're doing that, the more you're following the roadmap, the God of peace is going to show up on your doorstep. And he's going to what? Guard your hearts and your minds. The peace of God will invade your space and guard your emotions, guard your thinking. Now, is that easy to do? No. It's way more fun to complain and to worry and to be frustrated and talk in your head about stuff and talk to your friends about how you're irritated by things. That's way easier. But the roadmap to peace, man, it's going to be tough. This means we have to go a step further, and this is where Paul really gives the booster to it in verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true and honorable and just and pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything that is excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about that stuff. Do yourself a favor. Stop watching the news. Stop listening to the radio. Stop going on social media because that's all toxic, man. That doesn't bring peace. That brings frustration. That brings anger. That brings sadness. That brings worry. He says, focus on the stuff that actually will fill you up, right? He says, think about these things and what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and what? The God of peace will be with you. It's just a roadmap again. Now again, like I said, it is not easy to do. It's simple on paper, but it's not easy to do. In fact, as I was thinking about this this week, I thought, man, it's just easier in this world to fret, be frustrated, and try to force others to give me my security, right? I mean, that's what's made the world go round, but it doesn't last. You cannot make the world behave in such a way to establish any lasting peace. And if you don't believe me, just ask the Babylonians, or the Persians, or the Greeks, or the Romans, or the Ottomans, or the British. The list can go on, right? Nobody, nobody establishes it forever, right? You can have bites of truce. You can't have lasting peace in this world, uh, not apart from this little system right here. Same is true for individuals. People try money, and they try experiences, and they try relationships, and they try education, and they try knowledge, and they try whatever, and, and, and still they go, man, I've tried it, substances, alcohol, drugs, you name it. They go, man, I just can't find the peace. Why can't I find the peace? And it's because God's like, because there's just the peace that you only will have it in this world if you're finding a peace that transcends this world. 
And part of the process of this is not just simply, oh, I go and I hoard this divine peace for me, and therefore I have peace. No, there's this reality that you're to be a conduit of peace, which means you go to God, you follow this map, he is the God of peace with you, he gives peace to you, but then part of this is he's like, now you have to go and express that peace to others. You receive it to dispense it. You enjoy it to then give it. We see this in James chapter 3. He speaks of earthly wisdom in this section. He talks about those of us who try to get security through retaliation or conflict or ensuring our way of life at the cost of somebody else's way of life. But then he pivots and he says, but the wisdom that is from above is first of all pure. It also is peace-loving. Peace-loving, peace-hungering, peace-craving. It's gentle at all times. It's willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism. It is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Here's the deal, my friends. In our world there are plenty of people jockeying for the position of conflict creator. There are. Our politicians do it, our pundits do it, our media personalities do it. Even our own thinking wants to do it, right? Celebrities want to do it, you name it. Everybody is like, there, there's an industry for outrage. There's an industry for conflict. There's an industry to vilify one side and glorify another side. And James is like, but that's not the wisdom from above. The wisdom from above craves peace. Looks at the Prince of Peace who says, do it different. The Prince of Peace who entered the conflict and wasn't bringing conflict, but sowing something completely different. That stuff of the Sermon on the Mountain, the Sermon on the Plain, and the fruit of the Spirit, and the definition of love. Like, those were the things that the Prince of Peace brought into the world. And if we want to be hungry for the peace that he offers then we have to have his disposition and his priorities and his values. And we have to have a hunger to, in love, see all things reconciled. Because that's what the peace of the blood of the cross offers. And in this, we have to remember the promise that he taught us all. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. God blesses. God blesses those who create peace for they will be called the children of God. Right now, I want to do something a little different. I want to ask you to stand with me in prayer. And I want us to stand because there's something about it that's a different posture, right, than we typically do things. But in the standing, it's like we're getting ourselves as close as we can to our Father, saying, God, rain down on us peace. May we be ambassadors of peace. May we strive for peace and display peace as we have genuine peace. Let us pray together. Jesus, we need your peace, and I pray that we believe that you will bless the peacemakers, that we will strive for that above all else, that you will give us the strength and the wherewithal to hold our tongues, to tame our attitudes, to, to really subdue our worst impulses at times so that we might seek you, pray to you, long for you, and ask you to sow in our hearts a peace that we can sow into the lives of others. May we be faithful with the wisdom from above. May you bring the wisdom 
from above into our lives. We are desperate for you. The world is desperate for your people to be the people of peace. We know that you came into the world to bring this peace. You are the prince of peace. May we be ambassadors of that in your name. We thank you, Jesus. We love you. Work in us for your fame and your glory. In your name, amen.